Great. I think you are good to go, Rich. I'll hand you the word. Well, thank you, Max. Good to see you, NATO. I'm happy to be here to share some thoughts on practicing Dharma. Several weeks ago, you may recall, Nadal gave a talk on Shikantaza as pure sitting with no instruction, no guidance, no, no mantra. Emphasizing the centrality of Shikantaza in her lineage practice, she indicated that guided meditations are quite beside the point. And she referred to Dharma study as entertainment. My immediate takeaway was Shikantaza is real Zen practice, all else is entertainment because it involves dualistic mind. So in a follow-up email, I wondered, so Dharma teachings are entertainment? And Mato replied, no, no, Dharma study is entertainment, not Dharma teachings. So, okay. But Dharma teachings are not Shikantaza. I think that Dharma teachings of, of awakened mind are guidance in living well. While the intellectual study of Dharma may be entertainment, the practice of Buddha Dharma, walking the path as it were, is what Buddhist practice means, at least to me. Shikantaza may be the highest teaching and may be one's main practice. But I think it's not one's only practice necessarily. We attend Zen services, we embody precepts, we fulfill vows, and so on along the Buddhist path. As Madal had said regarding rituals, they are forms of practice. So what I'd like to do is to talk about practicing Dharma and each of us can and do practice Dharma and take responsibility for Dharma practice, given our understanding and the situations we find ourselves in. Thich Nhat Hanh offers the following account. One boy who practices at Plum Village told me this story. When he was 11, he was very angry at his father. Every time he fell down and hurt himself, his father would get angry and shout at him. The boy vowed that when he grew up, he would not be like his father, he would be different. But a few years ago, his little sister was playing with other children and fell off a swing and scraped her knee. It was bleeding and the boy became very angry. He wanted to shout at her. How stupid, why did he do that? But he caught himself because he had been practicing mindfulness. He knew how to recognize anger as anger, and he did not act on it. A number of adults circled around to take care of his sister and putting bandages on it, etc. And so he walked away slowly and practiced looking deeply. Suddenly he saw that he was like his father, and he recognized that if he did not do something about his anger, he would transmit it to his children. It was a remarkable insight for an 11 year old boy. And at the same time, he saw that his father may have been a victim just like him, 
the seeds of his father's anger might have been transmitted by his grandparents. Because of the practice of looking deeply in mindfulness, he was able to transform his anger into insight. Then he went to his father and told him that because he now understood him, he was able to really love him. This is from Teaching Peace, pages 31, 32. Now, I think this is authentic Buddhist practice of discipline and not allowing the seed of anger to manifest, of meditation and looking deeply, of understanding and seeing the nature of phenomena as dependently arisen, of compassion and seeing other as self, of loving kindness and bringing healing to his relationship with his father. <clears throat> so, we often similarly practice the Dharma. And I have found personally no recipes for doing so. The idea that I have is simply to, as it were, take the cushion in whatever situations one might find oneself. So I like to give voice to two examples. I use these examples because the situations that arose were ones that we have all experience in one way or another. This is the first example. It was a sunny, warm September day, a beautiful day, and equally tragic, great destruction and great suffering for many. I decided that the morning's events might serve as a basis for a meditation on suffering so to generate the wish to be compassionate and relieve beings from their suffering, I took my meditation cushion to a nearby area of giant oak, maple, and pine trees, softly clothing dry grassy earth and worn by streams of sunlight through the high leafy branches. I sat and I began to dwell on images from media and imagination, the destruction and suffering of those killed and injured, of course, in the Twin Towers I'm referring to, as well as the suffering of their loved ones. And I then attended to the human causes of such destruction and suffering. But soon I was dwelling on destruction and suffering in other contexts and of the human causes of those destructions and sufferings. I came to identify with the immediate victims of destruction and with loved ones, but I also came to identify with the sufferings of the human agents of destruction. The faces of American victims and Arab agents gave way to the faces of Jewish victims and Nazi German agents, of Tibetan victims and Maoist Chinese agents, and most vividly of Japanese victims and American bombardier agents, agents of devastations of far greater enormity. 
I realized with, the, with regard to both victims and agents of destruction, there but for the grace of God am I. This intuition was accompanied by yet another. The suffering of innumerable beings each reflect vulnerabilities and habit energies that dwell in me and in all other beings. These intuitions, along with the causes and conditions of that day's suffering, then dispersed into a formless spaciousness out of which it appears all perceptions, thoughts, feelings, and emotions arise only to dissolve. That night I took great comfort in the awareness and loving kindness of Buddhist Sangha friends. And for nine months, beginning the next Sunday, I sat with Christian society of friends realizing the importance of just sitting, just sitting in the peace of interbeing. A couple of days later, I wrote an editorial for the Buffalo News on why it was important to refrain from warfare for our nation to truly honor the dead. In hindsight, that September day remains tinged with horror and sadness. But in memory, I also joyously see wondrous light streams piercing through leaves and branches set against the clearest and bluest of autumn skies. This is a second example. At the time of President Trump's inauguration, Southern Tier Sangha gathered for meditation on the four boundless qualities. The instructions for these meditations follow the customary loving kind of sequence with a twist. We meditated first on oneself, then on one's dear ones, on the person next to us. Then others like ourselves politically, culturally, geographically, and religiously. And others unlike ourselves politically, culturally, geographically, and re religiously. So quite naturally, I found myself suffused in sympathetic joy for those similar to me when my most beloved candidates won office. And then somewhat surprisingly, I found myself suffused in sympathetic joy for those dissimilar to me when my least favorite candidates won office. When it came time to meditate on compassion, my sense of suffering with became more intense for those unlike me, whose favorite candidates won, in part because, at least I thought I could see, the delusions underlying their judgments and expectations, and hence the anguish and suffering that they would experience when firm expectations are not realized. Our inauguration day practice helped displace bitterness of disappointment with a sense of communal care. One result was that Sangha members organized an interfaith panel discussion on the golden rule. We called it when a stranger knocks. And from there, others joined in organizing the Olean Area Charter for Compassion to celebrate the many diverse ways that the community manifests compassion and loving kindness for others. 
as often said, one thing leads to another. And this is why the intention to benefit all beings is so important because through the intentions we channel our energies, our efforts. Thich Nhat Hanh's 11 year old boy felt an afflictive emotion, anger. Uh, my examples worked off emotions of moral horror and bitter disappointment. The teachings provide antidotes for emotions that cause us and others discomfort and suffering, such as fear, anger, resentment, envy, jealousy, possessive desire, or whatever. The antidotes work, but it's like pulling the tops of weeds and not getting to the root. So what is it that cuts through the root of afflictive emotions? The first noble truth, I think, gets to the heart of the matter. It reads, at least in one translation, now this monks is a noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair are suffering. Association with the dislike is suffering. Separation from the loved is suffering. Not to attain what we desire is suffering. In short, the five aggregates of attachment are suffering. These five aggregates are the constituents of a human being. And attachment to the aggregates forms one's identity or self. In short, suffering is due to self-clinging and the root of suffering is the deluded self we take ourselves to be. So we have to give up attachment to the no thing we take ourselves to be. For this underlies our grasping for what we like and our aversion for what we dislike. So the way out of suffering on this view is to cut through the illusion of self-identity. Whenever anyone is discomforted, not completely at ease, my teacher simply asks, and who is this I who is worried? Who is this I who is too warm or too cold? Who is this I who feels insulted? Who is this I who desperately wants a promotion? Is this being whom you are caring for so much, your essential self? If we filter what arises through a sense of I, me, and mine, what arises, excuse me, if we do not filter what arises through a sense of I, me, or mine, what arises is free to pass. In doing so, the vast equanimity dawns. In Chikantaza, I understand, body, mind, self drop away completely. And this is why it is foremost practice. In Dzogchen, one is advised, quote, relaxing and uncontrived awareness the free and open natural state, obtain the blessing of the self-liberation of whatever arises. 
this happens to be my main practice. But regardless of main practice or perhaps highest practice, I view guided meditations as themselves Dharma practice to facilitate the absorbing of the truth of Dharma. For example, the truth of no self. So what I like to do is to provide an example of a guided meditation. Not that we would do the meditation now, but I'd just like to read through the instruction to give you an idea of what I consider to be um, a meditation that one can utilize in one's Dharma practice. So I call this my true name and it's inspired by Thich Nhat Hanh, as you will see. The first instruction is to count one's exhalations 21 times simply to relax in body and mind. And then there's a number of things to reflect upon. Number one, when and how did you arrive? What did your face look like before you were born? Two, do you recall when you first heard your name? Did you have several names when a baby or a young child? How do names arise? Three, please think of a happy memory when you were young, say a four or 10 years of age. Bring to mind an image that captures your look and your spirit at that young age. Remain with that image. Was not your future wide open? Now think of when you were in high school or college, or better yet, perhaps middle school, junior high. What were your names then? How were you known by your friends? What kinds of labels did you have? Was your spirit the same or different at that point in time? Five, re recall a time marked by achievement or transition into adult life. Perhaps it was a commencement, a marriage, a first real job, birth of a child, or whatever. How did you then view yourself? Was your horizon still limitless? What names or identities have you come to assume? Daughter, son, husband, wife, mom, dad, homemaker, executive, teacher, social worker, Democrat, Republican, religious, non-religious, professional, employee, whatever they may be, do such identities fully define who you are? Are they your essential self? Seven, what principal identities do you now carry? 
Now, one by one, imagine yourself existing without those identities. Yes, life is very different. Can you manage? Now imagine you are about to pass from this life. Do you not see you must let go of your small self defined by a small circle of loved persons and activities? For they all will be left behind. Is the spirit you are you are any other than that of the young youth that you had previously imagined with full potential, not yet a small self? Nine, do you wonder where I will go? Where will I go from here? Please recall that you miraculously were born into this world. Will you not arise again and again? This is the voice of Thich Nhat Hanh. Look deeply. You arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. You still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of your heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. So I recommend this or many other meditations for mind training in order to prepare us to live the Dharma in the situation set inevitably arise. And I welcome your comments, your examples. I have heard so many of you in weeks past instantly apply the teaching of Mado's, of Mado's Dharma talks to your own situations. Thank you, Rich, for that.